I, I'm, I'm shocked regularly. It, it, and I don't, this sounds harsher than I mean it. I don't, I don't mean this way, but there, there is a naivete among a lot of ministers that I'm like, they assume that if someone goes through a new members class and professes faith and is a regular attender, maybe even for 15, 20 years, that they're with them on everything. And I'm like, you are living in a dreamland if you think that's the case. Um, and you, it's not just, it's not, it's not just that they're secretly against you. That, that's not my point. My point isn't that when you preach on say hell, they're thinking, I don't believe that. What, what you don't realize is they, they have their own questions, their own doubts or insecurities and their own, their own, their own thoughts like, well, I'm not sure I'm always buying that, or that doesn't always fit in my mind. And we've got to learn to shepherd people through that better. And so there's this weird presumption that, that, that people are with us that just is entirely unwarranted. And by the way, it was unwarranted 500 years ago. It's not like now is the only time it's unwarranted. We've always should have been doing that. It's just, I would say it's especially true now, given the flow of information in our world. People are hearing from people other than their pastor most of the time. In the ancient world, that wasn't the case. Like a plot from a movie, one of the leading evangelical New Testament scholars in the world studied at one point under someone who would become the leading antagonistic non-Christian New Testament scholar. And that Christian thinker is Dr. Mike Kruger, who at one point in his undergraduate studies at UNC Chapel Hill, go Tar Heels, studied under Dr. Bart Ehrman, who, if you've been a listener of this show for any amount of time at all, uh, you've heard him mentioned multiple times as one of, honestly, um, the leading antagonistic voices against Christianity in our world today. And Dr. Kruger began his biblical studies under him and uh, really now has come to not be defined by that at all. But the leading work that he's done in the history of the biblical canon um, in uh, just understanding the New Testament and the conversation that he and I had for today's episode actually centered around something that is not in that arena really at all, at least not the academic side of it, but it's his book that just came out this year through uh, Crossway, Surviving Religion 101, which he actually wrote in a sense to his daughter who was beginning her undergraduate studies at his alma mater. UNC Chapel Hill. And so it's a tremendous conversation and you might not be too familiar with Dr. Kruger, but there's a pretty good chance that you're familiar with his wife, Melissa Kruger, who's actually a past guest of this show. She is the director of women's initiatives with the gospel coalition. So it's exciting to have had both of them on the show. I think it's our first husband and wife. Um, I always thought it would probably be uh, Brian and Cheryl Brodison, but we haven't reached out to Cheryl yet, but um, that day is probably coming. But it's amazing to think about just the impact that these two have had on the kingdom. And I'm excited for you to hear the conversation that I've had with Dr. Kruger. If you haven't listened to the one that I was honored to have with Melissa, go do that. Please go check out, um, before we get to the episode, please go check out the opportunity that ATAP has all things, all people. If you don't know, uh, we have the opportunity to be nominated for the People's Choice Podcast Awards. And so in the link for this show, and then also in the bio for um, our Instagram bio, all things all people, you can go and actually it takes like one minute. I know that we don't like to put our email into things. You're not going to get spammed. Um, but it takes like one minute to go vote for the show. And if you do, there's a chance that we could be, um, you know, put through to the final round of voting where there in the religion and spirit spirituality section would be 
the All Things All People podcast. And as far as I can tell right now, it's one of the few, if the only Christian evangelical podcast in there. So uh, would love your help in seeing God glorified in that in that award section. Um, coming up in the next few weeks, we have some really phenomenal guests. I hope that you'll check it out. Um, go check out the Instagram bio uh, for for all things all people, and go check out Dr. Kruger's most recent book. Which, whether you're a student or not, or you know a student, you should go check out because it's a great one. And you're about to find out why with our conversation this week with our Christian thinker, Dr. Mike Kruger. Let's do it. My next guest serves as the president and Samuel C. Patterson, professor of New Testament and early Christianity at the Charlotte campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. He is one of the leading scholars today in the study of the origins of the New Testament, particularly the development of the New Testament canon. He's the author of 11 books, most recently the one that he and I get to discuss today, Surviving Religion 101, Letters to a Christian Student on Keeping the Faith in College, which came out of Crossway this year. He has been published at the popular level on just about every important evangelical website around, including the Gospel Coalition and Desiring God, and also writes on his own blog, which is extremely interesting, Canon Fodder, and it's linked in the notes for today's episode. Please go check that out. Of particular interest to listeners is that he is married to past guest, uh, Melissa Kruger, who serves as director of women's initiatives for the Gospel Coalition. And so with all that in mind and more, it is my absolute pleasure to have on the show today, Dr. Mike Kruger. Dr. Kruger, thank you so much for making time for this. Thanks, Jeremy. It's good to be with you and look forward to this. Yeah, well, it, it's it's exciting to have you. I think you and Melissa certainly constitute the first husband and wife duo that I've had at various times on the show. Um, and uh, I, I, I think I asked you this question, um, as people are going to find out listening to you talk about this, this book, uh, you received your undergraduate degree from uh, North Carolina Chapel Hill, which of course you and I both being in North Carolina are, are very familiar with and, and anybody who lives in North Carolina. I was somewhat disappointed to find out from Melissa. Um, I am a big Tar Heel basketball fan. And she said that uh, the two of you seem to be more inclined towards uh, uh, soccer or football as some listeners are going <laughs> to know it. Uh, how, how is it that you uh, spent the, your uh, formative years at Chapel Hill and, and didn't end up uh, a big basketball fan. Well, just point of clarification, we obviously are huge fans of yes. the Tar Heels in every sport. And <laughs> every sport. I was certainly. at many games, cheering them on. Yeah. Uh, I think what she meant is that basketball is not necessarily our personal mm. favorite sport. Good. Um, we're more <laughs> soccer folks. I actually tracked the the UNC soccer program quite yeah. uh, carefully. So the women's has a long history of success, as you probably yeah. know, and the men's team's done really well in the last 20 years and uh so yeah there's a lot to enjoy on all the sports over there but yeah so we're more on the soccer side of the equation but certainly love the history at chapel hill in terms yeah. of basketball and uh and love cheering them on in the in the in the, in the winter months well in in chapel hill they're they're kind of good at just about everything it seems so you get to you get to pick and choose what you cheer for for sure because they're, they're successful but um but yeah in in it's i think listeners are gonna find out as they listen to this conversation Hopefully they get their hands on this particular book, um, which is really one of the first books, I think, if I'm correct, that you've written on what might be called the popular level. Most of your writing is um, is pure academic writing. Um, was it difficult for you? And, I, and, and people who who are listening can't see what I see is is a room full of books and, and a really a career spent 
at the highest levels of academia. Was it difficult for you to um, to write this book, which really deals with some difficult and intricate topics at the lay level? Yeah, I, I, I guess I wouldn't probably describe it as difficult. I think I would describe it as different. Mm. Um, I have been writing on a popular level on my blog, and that's been helpful, even though this is, you're correct, this is my first popular level book. So I've had to write with more restraint. And by restraint, I, I, I always feel obligated to offer, you know, 25 footnotes for every point I'm making. Yeah. And I realize as I'm writing the book, oh, the, the reader isn't going to need that nor necessarily want that. Um, and so I, I, I'm content sort of making statements with <laughs> with less uh, you know, footnotes backing them up. And then I'm, I tried in the book also to sort of uh, you know, make more practical applications, use more illustrations, try to, to drive it home in ways that people would understand. And, and hopefully I was successful at doing that, um, it, but it was a joy to write. And, yeah. and I, I, I laughed when it was over. I was like, wow, if, I didn't know you could write a book this quickly. You know, it usually takes me years to write a book. And I, yeah. and I was thinking this, 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 this sounds pretty good. Maybe I'll do this again. So I hope, I hope you do. Cause it was really good. And for, for listeners who haven't um, spent much time in ac academia, especially religious academia, where you're writing everything in what might be called Chicago or Turabian style. Um, you, you have this muscle memory where every time you make any definitive claim, you have to put a footnote in and essentially show where you get that information. I'm sure um, like I've experienced it. So I can't imagine to what level I'm sure there were times where it almost provoked anxiety to say, now, shouldn't I, shouldn't I point to a footnote for this claim that I'm making? Cause you've spent so much right. time doing that. Well, you know, you always expect who's going to get on your case about some point without the footnote. But then I realized the people reading the book aren't going to be right. Um, you know, scholars that are reviewing it most likely. Right. So yeah. um, cause it's not intended to be an academic book. Right. Well, and you did have some great reviews. Obviously, one is a personal friend of yours, Kevin DeYoung, who you serve with at the at the church that you that you're at. But it, it, the most interesting point of the book, and this is where I think um, listeners, readers, um, whoever might be uh, listening to this conversation and checking out the book, uh, the mistake to be made would be to think that because it's titled Surviving Religion 101 and it's actually styled, um, interestingly enough, as letters to your daughter, Emma, um, who uh, shortly before the writing of the book was at her first year at your alma mater. Um, this really is a book that anybody uh, who has these type of questions, some of the most difficult questions that Christians are going to encounter um, can pick up and read. But like I said, it is styled as letters to your daughter, Emma, as she navigates her undergrad undergraduate years at Chapel Hill, where you attended and where Melissa attended as well. Um, so now, though, as you look back at your own personal experience in undergraduate, your daughter's experience in, in undergraduate and so many students alike, and you write this book for people who, for the first time, like you did, are being confronted sometimes with very, very difficult questions about religion and faith in the Bible. But now you're a respected New Testament scholar. What is it that stuck with you about those undergraduate years um, as you detail in the book, taking a class with Bart Ehrman, who now is one of the more prolific antagonistic voices um, in the field of religion when it comes to Christianity. What was it that stuck with you all those years that prompted you to write this book? Yeah, what, what, this this book, as you noted, is is partly autobiographical. So it tells a little bit of my story, although the, the vast bulk of the book is obviously written to current college students. Mm -hmm. But I think I think the thing that motivated me is just the, the the memory of feeling very much 
like, wow, maybe everything I've believed has been wrong. What, what, if, what if what I thought was true isn't true after all? And, uh, and by the way, you know, college is a good place where you should be thinking about what you believe, of course, and it's, it's, you, you know, it's a time when you do ask those kinds of questions. What I think struck me, though, is how unprepared I was to answer those kinds of questions. And, 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 and the question worth asking is why? I mean, I grew up in a solid Christian home and at arguably, you know, solid Christian churches, but yet I never really was ready for anything remotely like that. So what happened there? And have we done anything since to fix it? Uh, now, my, my, my book isn't trying to teach churches how to prepare young folks. That's not what it's about. I'm writing to people who are already in college. But, but I do think the question that, that, that's floating around out there is, well, what, what happened to our churches where these people aren't ready? And so when I wrote the book, I, I, I knew that the church hadn't really done anything different in the last 30 years. <laughs> and so I figured that there's still students going off today in exactly the same place I was. And so I can't rewind the clock for them, but at least I can help them while they're in that pickle. And so the whole point of the book was, I hope to help people to make through, make it through the situation I made it through. I didn't really have any helps, but I hope to give them some. Yeah. You, you, you mentioned that, you know, you went through it. You didn't have um, the background that you wish you had and that you, you hope that this book will help others. Um, could you kind of detail for listeners who haven't read the book yet, what was that experience? And I've already mentioned you did study at least uh, one class under Bart Ehrman, who um, I, he gets mentioned on this show so much that I think I'm going to have to start paying him royalties because, you know, he really has become um, a scholar that evangelical Christians continually find themselves being questioned by. And um, but you there years and years ago, before he gained that level of fame, were experiencing some of that questioning firsthand. So what was that experience that you went through um, that that really caused you to, OK, what do I believe and, and how yeah. can I express that? Well, I mean, it was an intimidating experience. I mean, Ehrman is a very gifted scholar and an excellent communicator. He's compelling and witty and funny and persuasive. Uh, and he went after all the standard arguments, everything from, of course, textual criticism and transmission issues, which is sort of where he's made his bread and butter, but also to, you know, contradictions in the Gospels, mm -hmm. um, the historical reliability of the authorship claims, whether these books are forgeries. I mean, that was all there. Mm -hmm. um, now, you know, Ehrman himself at the time was a brand new professor at UNC. I think he'd only been there a couple of years when I had him and wasn't nearly as famous then as he is now. And nobody really knew what he would be. So mm -hmm. I didn't realize at the time, of course, that I was taking a class with a guy that would be one of the most well-known scholars in the world. Yeah. Um, but I certainly felt the effects of it. So what was curious was watching my fellow students too struggle. So it wasn't just me. I was watching other people's reactions and they were all over the board. I mean, some were just punting the Christian faith entirely. Others were sort of in the denial mode. They're just pretending it wasn't happening. And others were trying to find some sort of hybrid sort of mix between, you know, Ehrman's views and Christian views and and I was just watching this all unfold. So it was quite the experience. And, you know, it obviously made an impact on me enough where it led me down a path where I became a biblical scholar myself, which mm -hmm. is sort of a kind of an irony of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. But uh, now we've come full circle as my daughter heads there. And, and I'm excited maybe to help other students navigate those same things. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, uh, you know, now, um, you know, in the world that you're in, I know that you've spent time um, studying University of Edinburgh under a very well-respected New Testament scholar in, in his own right, and then spending time, I think, um, as a resident scholar, a uh, visiting professor at Tyndale House, and some, some really, really high-level academic pursuits. Have you um, had the opportunity to 
uh, work with Ehrman or, or have conversations with him um, now that you are right there participating in New Testament scholarship uh, in the same way, but obviously from a different vantage point? No, we don't have any personal interactions. Um, we, run in, we run in the same academic circles in some senses. Like you said, we, we cover the same topics, but we, we don't in other senses, yeah. uh, meaning that, uh, you know, my world, I tend to be more uh, interacting with seminary and evangelical yeah. scholars. So we haven't, it's not like we've had time to sit down and have lunch or something, but, um, <laughs> yeah. but we, do, we do cross paths at SPL, um, Society mm-hmm. of Biblical Literature every year, things right. like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, in, in the book, and, and, and for those listening, once again, I just want to go ahead and, and say it one more time. I, throughout reading it, I was continually impressed with the notion that anybody could pick this book up. Um, even if they're not a current college student, but um, because really throughout the book, um, you, you navigate and and engage with some of the most difficult subjects that um, any Christian, but specifically a young Christian who might be coming from an an environment where like you experienced, they, they didn't have the, the preparation to deal with things like inclusivism, um, different religions, the problem of evil, the, the ever-present now LGBTQ issues, and then the things that you've studied for years, textual criticism, canon development. Um, do you remember in your own experience, um, whether it was taking a class with Ehrman, but of course, too, just the entire experience that you had in undergraduate, what helped you the most in your own experience in helping to um, answer some of these, these deep seated questions that were going on all those years ago, um, that now, you know, you're, I'm sure some of that has carried over even into how you're, uh, helping your own children and young people deal with it now. Yeah. So there's, there's two different layers in which you deal with, with unbelief. You can quibble over individual facts or individual data points. So you could Mm -hmm. ask, did John really write John? Okay. Is, is, Paul's letter to the Ephesians of forgery. You could ask whether Luke contradicts the census of Quirinius. You could ask mm-hmm. these questions, and those are all important in their own right and need to be dealt with. What I think I've learned is that, that you can't interact with non-Christians on merely the fact level because there's, there's, there's a missing and a, and, a, and a lack of awareness that the way facts are interpreted and, and interacted with depends on someone's prior worldview. So one of the things I, I point out in my book repeatedly, almost chapter after chapter, is that what, what a person finds believable or, or credible or, or worthy of assent is not just dependent on the evidence. It's dependent on their pre-existing beliefs. In other words, they already believe other things before they get to that question. And the other things they already believe determine whether they find that issue credible. So you just take something like the resurrection, whether someone finds the evidence for the resurrection credible or persuasive. Well, that depends on a lot of other things they already believe or don't believe about the possibility of miracles or whether you think the gospel reports are reliable and so on and so forth. And so you you realize that worldviews play a massive role in why people believe what they believe. They don't just put on a white lab coat and collect data. They, 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 they collect data through the lens of a pre-existing commitment. And so that's a huge category for college students to have. And honestly, for anybody to have, if they're going to interact with our hostile world. Yeah. And, and really um, I think anybody who's experienced it themselves going off to college, but especially you, you know, you as a scholar and then now a parent who's sending children off to school, um, you think that for most young people, whatever environment they're they're growing up in, whether a Christian or not, um, would you agree that it seems as if going to college in that transitional phase in life is really the first time that they're even 
um, reckoning with the idea that, oh, not everybody thinks the way that I do. Um, it seems right. like that's part of the issue that maybe we, we should probably start talking about in churches is telling our young people, before we can even educate you on what the rest of the world believes, I think we need to realize you might not even realize that they don't see things the same way that you do. Is that part of the issue in your estimation? Yeah, there, there, there is a idea, I think, among many churches, and it's well-intended, but the idea is that our job as parents is to protect our kids from every other influence other than Christian influences. So they kind of grow up inside this sort of hermeneutical theological bubble, and they don't, they're not allowed to really engage with non-Christian thought because we are afraid it's going to corrupt them. And then to some extent, we, they don't even really know any non-Christians in certain circles. And I think that, that that's well-intended, but deeply problematic. And the analogy I give is it's kind of like parents who are very germaphobic. They don't let their kids ever, you know, uh, you know, play in the dirt and they're you know, using hand sanitizer six times a day and everything is, is wiped down with Clorox wipes. Well, that seems well-intended too. You're trying to make your kid not get sick, right? But studies have shown that actually that in the long run, that might actually hurt your child's immune system because their immune system never gets kick-started. It never, never learns how to defend itself. So what you think is protecting your kid might be hurting them. Well, I, I think there's an analogy there of what's been going on in the church. I think we basically have inoculated or we've forgotten that we need to inoculate our kids against non-Christian belief. And you do that by giving them a little bit of it so they can understand how to fight against it. Um, and so we just need to do a better job. And honestly, we just need to, 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 to ratchet down the uh, fear factor a little bit and realize mm -hmm. that, that um, you know, we're not always doing our kids a favor by, by treating them that way. Yeah. And I loved how you navigated this um, in the book. And what I found probably most interesting was knowing your background, knowing the type of work you're in as, a, as the president of a seminary. And um, as you mentioned, you know, everything you've written up to this point, other than for things like Gospel Coalition and Desiring God and whatnot, has been uh, academic in nature. But, you know, you you broach the subjects of um the LGBTQ arena and um, the Christian teachings on hell, which these are issues that probably even more than textual criticism, our students are, they probably have questions about it even when they're in high school, but they don't know how to talk to their pastor, their parents about it. And oftentimes when they go off to school or into the workforce, whatever it might be, they're for the first time in an environment where questions are allowed, um, questions are uh, encouraged. Um, what is it, you know, what's kind of the thesis that you put forth in the book for these young people in dealing with things like, let's just say hell, at the beginning of the chapter on hell, you included a quote from, I believe, Bertrand Russell, where he said, the only problem with the character of Jesus Christ is that he believed in hell. And if there's a, if there's a, and Bertrand Russell, everything he said was extremely quotable and, you know, <laughs> profound, but um, I think that's a great summary of what the world thinks about the Christian teaching on hell and here we are sending 18 year olds to institutions where they're going to be, they might be the only person in, in a class, in a dorm that subscribes to that teaching. Um, how do you suppose we should help our young people um, narrow down what exactly they believe, but then also prepare to be in institutions and not just school, but the workplace, um, the marketplace um, where they have to explain these things and, and, and even sometimes defend them. How do you kind of go about that? Yeah, so the, 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 the chapter on hell actually is a good example chapter of my approach, which is, you know, it's not like I just go through verses in the Bible that teach about hell. I mean, that's not my, my approach. My approach is to say, look, 
the doctrine of hell is going to seem plausible or implausible, offensive or not offensive, depending on earlier beliefs you have. What are those earlier beliefs? Well, what you think God is like, you know, what kind of, what kind of God are you, are you imagining in your head? What would he, what are his proclivities? What, what is, what is his character like? Okay. That, that determines whether you find hell plausible or not. And then the other thing that you already believe something about is what humans are like, and maybe more to the point, what you yourself are like. Um, and most people believe that God is kind of like Santa Claus in the sky. He's a lovable old guy who just wants you to be happy. And then they mostly think of themselves as a pretty good person that, yeah, I make mistakes, but you know, we're humans and all humans make mistakes. And, you know, it's just the way the world is. And, and if you had that view of God, which most people do, and you had that view of humans and most people do, then I agree. Hell is totally outrageous mm. on, on that view of God and humanity. They're right. Hell makes no sense at all. But what people don't realize is that dismiss hell and say it doesn't make sense is just only something you can do if you already assume that you're right about the first two things. But what if you aren't right about those things? What if you're wrong about the way God is? What if you're wrong about the way humans are? And so you've got to ratchet things back a bit and dial it back and ask those deeper, larger questions. And it just shows, again, that what someone's going to believe is already dependent on an earlier worldview. So I try to help the reader see that, well, the, the Christ, on the Christian view of God and on the Christian view of humans, hell actually makes a lot of sense. Now, that doesn't mean you have to like it, but not liking something's not an argument. But what you can't say is that within the Christian system, it's, it's incomprehensible. No, given what we believe, it actually is the logical outworking of a holy God and simple people. Yeah. And, and in the book, uh, towards the beginning, you sort of set up this method that you work through throughout these various chapters. And um, you mentioned that, I think, talking about your own experience, that you went to school, you entered the adult world with an evangelical focus, which gave primacy to personal salvation and personal holiness. And, you know, you make a point in, in the book of saying those two things are ex extremely important, but we, to a certain degree, have left out a developing of a biblical worldview, which is really what you're saying, just even in that answer there. How can pastors like, like myself, teachers, um, parents, whoever it might be, who has a vested interest in raising up these next generations, do a better job, in your opinion, um, before kids go to school, before they enter yeah. the marketplace of helping them establish a biblical worldview, because that is kind of a tall order. And I know that you know that better than even I do as a parent and a teacher. So kind of how do you think we could change our approach in that area? Yeah, I've, I've thought a good bit about this since writing the book, and, and maybe that's volume two. Who knows? Uh, you know, maybe I'll have a, a second volume here, yeah. which is more to the church. But uh, uh, there, there's two things I think need to change. Um, uh, well, more than two, but here are two. Mm. Um, first, I think pastors need to recover what I call the art of persuasion when they preach and mm. teach. What we're not doing in churches is persuading. What we are doing is telling, informing, um, teaching. Uh, we're passing along information, um, but we're not persuading. And by persuading, what I mean by that is that you're actually making the case, even to Christians. Don't assume Christians are with you on this. Mm -hmm. They have their own doubts. You persuade. Persuading means making the case to Christians that this view of reality makes the most sense and is the most plausible and fits the most things together inside a cohesive system. So you're every, when you preach a sermon, don't just say, I'm going to teach you something. You want to think about how I'm going to persuade you that this makes sense, this fits, this is right. And if you think, well, I got 100 people in my church and they're all professing Christians, I don't need to do that. I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand mm -hmm. then the way people are operating. People have their own doubts. They need to be reminded. Yes, they might believe it, but they need to be persuaded again of it. And so as soon as you start that as a mentality, I think you'll find that your preaching changes and people are well, more well-equipped. 
The other piece of advice I have is what I call articulation. So this is more to parents, but it applies to, to, to pastors too. When you teach what the worldview of Christianity is to a, to, a, to a child or a teenager, don't just teach that to them, force them to articulate it themselves. Mm-hmm. Ask them to explain what they believe. And when you ask them to explain what they believe, don't give them a, 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 a friendly audience, give them a hostile audience, force them to explain what they believe to someone who may not buy it. Now, I can tell you this as an educator, there's a big difference between asking someone to learn something and asking someone to articulate something. Those are mm-hmm. not the same things. As soon as you start articulating something, you realize, oh, wow, I better know it better than I thought I did. And I better be able to articulate it to someone who's not necessarily a friendly audience. Yeah. If we just did those two things, I think we'd make great headway yeah. uh, in the church. I think those are phenomenal suggestions. And as a pastor and teacher myself, I, I, I can certainly say that those, those things are lacking. What, one thing that you're alluding to, um, at least in regards to teachers and pastors and preachers and in regards to the art of persuasion, um, I know that your teacher in residence at Christ covenant, uh, church, um, in there in Charlotte. Um, and so I know that you are often teaching congregations, not just seminary students, when you get into a pulpit or find yourself in a situation where you are talking specifically to lay people, is there something in your mind where you, where not only are you saying, I want to make a better case for this, but maybe where you're sitting there thinking more people than we're willing to admit likely have questions on things that for a long time we've assumed that they just believed. Um, and does that kind of shape how you preach and teach? It does. I, I'm, I'm shocked regularly. It, it, and I don't, I, this sounds harsher than I mean it. I don't, I don't mean this way, but there, there is a naivete among a lot of ministers mm-hmm. that I'm like, they assume that if someone goes through a new members class and professes faith and is a regular attender, maybe even for 15, 20 years, that they're with them on everything. And I'm like, yeah. you are living in dreamland if you think that's the case. Yeah. Um, and you, it's not just, it's not, it's not just that they're secretly, against you. That, that's not my point. My point isn't that when you preach on, say, hell, they're thinking, I don't believe that. What, what you don't realize is they, they have their own questions, their own doubts or insecurities and their own, their, own, their own thoughts like, well, I'm not sure I'm always buying that or that doesn't always fit in my mind. And we've mm-hmm. got to learn to shepherd people through that better. And so there's this weird presumption that, that, that people are with us that just is entirely unwarranted. And by the way, it was unwarranted 500 years ago. It's not like now is the only time it's unwarranted. Right. Mm-hmm. We've always should have been doing that. It's just, I would say it's especially true now, given the flow of information in our world. People are hearing from people other than their pastor most of the time. In the ancient world, that wasn't the case. The, mm-hmm. most, the person they heard from the most was probably their minister on a Sunday because they didn't get a lot of other information in a lot of other ways, especially if they couldn't read. Mm-hmm. But in our modern day, people are not getting information mainly from their churches. They're getting it mainly from other places. And if we don't make an adjustment, we're going to be we're gonna be in a lot of trouble. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me, I think I've heard John Stott say... Um, that we need to remember when we're preaching that there are people in our congregations who are thinking to themselves, is it true? Um, and that, that kind of sounds similar to what you're saying. And I think it's even, um, to a different degree, interesting coming from you because you are a textual scholar. I mean, you have, um, an education that almost no one else in every room that you preach in is going to have in regards to the original languages and in church history. And you include in the book, some chapters on textual, textual topics, um, textual criticism. And as I've pointed out, this is, this is your field. Um, I was a student pastor for a long time. Um, you know, I teach at a local college and, and I found that issues are surrounding the text 
are especially difficult to help people navigate when they find somebody being antagonistic in regards to what, what you experienced with Bart Ehrman all those years ago. And students still are, they go to Chapel Hill and it might not be Ehrman anymore, but somebody is making them think, hey, there's, there's errors in the text and they're, they're not reconcilable. Um, there's errors in the Greek or the Aramaic and Hebrew. And these are things that for the average layperson are, at least they feel impossible to overcome. And like you just said, they might have already been thinking, ah, this, doesn't, this Bible doesn't make sense anyway, at least not as much sense as my pastor made it seem. Um, and so it kind of confirms some of these sneaking suspicions. What do you suggest in the book for engaging these particular issues with students, the ones where it could be easy to feel as if I don't understand Greek and Hebrew, I really can't um, answer my professor or my, my roommate's questions about these textual issues. How do you suggest we start dealing with that? Yeah, well, one of the points I make throughout the book is even if you don't have an answer, it doesn't mean someone else hasn't answered it. Mm -hmm. um, and a reminder I give to the reader and to anyone listening to this podcast is that there, there's secular scholars out there who have their view of the text and textual transmission, fair enough. But there's also a plethora of other scholars out there who have a very different view of the text and textual transmission. Mm -hmm. You know, one fact that people don't know is that when you look at seminaries across the United States, there's a group called the Association of Theological Schools, ATS. What people don't realize is the top 10 biggest seminaries in the United States are all evangelical seminaries. So if you think about what you might call more mainline or liberal seminaries, you know, maybe like a Princeton or something like this, right. people don't realize they are not where the students are. And they're, they're, that's not, they're not the biggest schools. That means there's mm -hmm. thousands of students across the country in these top 10 biggest seminaries and hundreds of professors that all don't think like Bart Ehrman. Yeah. So what do you, when someone says all scholars say, or scholarship has concluded X, I'm just like, well, you just mean the ones you're wanting to read or right. the ones you're willing to listen yeah. to. And so one way to deal with textual criticism, because it's such a complex thing, is that, look, you don't have to know yourself all the answers. It's really a complicated field. Mm -hmm. But you should know that there's people who've studied it and reached very different conclusions. And I tried to lay it out in those chapters some of the basic reasons why we've reached those different conclusions that hopefully give people some data points but obviously I don't expect them to become little, little textual critics yeah. uh, in order to have conversations with their non-Christian friends. I, I absolutely agree. And I've had, um, I've had a, a, a long list of apologists on this show and I'm, I'm very passionate about apologetics as I'm sure you are as well. Do you feel though, sometimes we've placed an expectation on the average Christian to be able to swat down um, any, you know, any detractor, any question with a, a pithy response because we saw an apologist on YouTube do it because I, I agree with you. Some questions, you know, and, and I not anywhere near as much education as you, but I find myself sometimes having to tell people, Hey, let me get back to you on that. That's and I, in my opinion, that's not a sign of weakness. Uh, do you feel as if maybe sometimes we've made Christians feel like if you can't answer someone's question right away, uh, then, then that shows, you know, that we don't really know what we're, what we're talking about. Yeah, I cover that in the book too. So, you know, I make the point that, look, you know, if you don't have an answer to your, to the question you get asked, first of all, give yourself a break. You're only 19 or whatever. And so, right. you know, don't think you're going to have answers to all these things. But then secondly, not having an answer doesn't mean what you believe isn't true. Mm -hmm. I, I'm amazed at how many times people think, well, if I can't answer that question, then maybe the whole edifice of Christianity is going to come crumbling down. I'm like, well, okay, so let me get this straight. So you're, you're 20 years old and you get a question you can't answer and you think the whole edifice is going to come tumbling down right. because of that. Why would you think that? 
You know, there's the world's a complicated place. Of course, you're going to get asked a question you don't know the answer to. I get asked questions all the time I don't know the answer yeah. to. <laughs> um, these things are complicated, difficult matters. There is, there, there is an unfortunate side of some popular level apologetics that makes everything seem super slick, black and white, easy peasy, one, two, three, and we can dispel of all uh, objections to the faith in 30 seconds. And, 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 and the conclusion you should reach is that every non-Christian is a moron. Um, and if they only listen to my apologetics podcast, they would know better. That, that attitude, that approach is unfortunate um, because mm-hmm. it does create a whole lot of misunderstandings and, and false expectations. And not to mention just being sort of arrogant and derogatory towards non-Christians, yeah. Um, yeah. which I think is very off-putting. Um, there's a lot of smart non-Christians out there, smarter than me, um, <laughs> and smarter than a lot of people. And they have legitimate questions. Mm-hmm. So to dismiss their questions as just, you know, uh, chaff is just not mm-hmm. fair to anyone. So yeah. yeah, I think there's a there's a there's a frivolity that happens there that needs yeah. to be uh, corrected. And I think it, it strikes back once again at what you have laced throughout the whole book is that when we understand the idea of people coming from different worldviews, then we can understand why they're asking the questions that they're asking. And when you do that, you'll be much slower to act arrogantly of, oh, I can't even believe that you would ask this question. Um, because if you're talking to somebody, you know, from a part of the world or a, a faith system that is completely antithetical to Christianity, then it's only fair that they have these questions um, about our faith. Like they did, they weren't raised in the Bible belt or, or Wheaton or something like that. So, so yeah, um, I, I, I suppose then before I let you go, um, one question I had, and it was, it's almost tongue in cheek. And so please forgive me for this because I find it somewhat interesting that, you know, you and I are talking about this and you're the president of a, of a prestigious evangelical seminary. Um, all of my degrees are from Christian schools. Um, and, you know, we're talking about how to navigate this uh, situation of, you know, you're sending your daughter to Chapel Hill and um, and, and it's helping young people na- navigate this. Um, and I sort of sometimes when I'm talking about this, feel like an imposter because um, I never experienced this. You know, I, I, I did my undergraduate at Liberty, my master's at Columbia International. Um, I never experienced a situation like what you experienced in in your undergraduate. Um, do you, in your mind, as you as you wrote the book, was there any part of you that said it would be great if some of our evangelical scholars found their way into these secular institutions as opposed to um Gardner Webb and uh, Liberty and Reformed Theological Seminary in Westminster, um, which of course are I- I- amazing schools. But is there any part of you that says it'd be great if evangelicals ended up at Chapel Hill? Uh, yeah, absolutely. If they'd have so, them. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I, I, I'd probably just say it uh, 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 in a more broad sense, which is mm-hmm. that I think the modern university system needs to do better at allowing yeah. a legitimate diversity of views. So I don't think for a moment that UNC Chapel Hill should be teaching evangelical views. Right. I just think they should allow professors who are there to have evangelical views and have their own opinions about such matters and not, in a sense, ban them from teaching there. Um, and so I think what university, and I say a little bit of this in, in the introduction of my book, which is that universities need to recapture what w- would be called a classical liberal education. And by liberal there, I don't mean yeah. what most people think I mean by liberal. Mm-hmm. Classical liberal education would just mean that l- legitimately every view is allowed on the table to be discussed and debated and not sort of preemptively 
prohibited from, from being a, a valid option. And so, mm -hmm. so if, if UNC or any school would do that, then what I would hope they would do is proactively look to hire people with a diversity of views. And so here's the word diversity again, which our universities love, but they never apply it when it comes to views. They only apply diversity when it comes to ethnicity or gender or what, what have you. Um, and, but, they, but they need to really think about applying it to diversity of views. And if they did, that, that that's what real diversity would look like on a college campus is to have yeah. people with different opinions. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned, uh, I think, in the introduction of the book that at some of the most liberal institutions in our university system here in the U.S., the faculty um, in regards to their political views are about, in some of the most extreme cases, like 120 to one in regards to liberal versus conservative political affiliations. And then. Yeah, and that was a Harvard professor tracking yeah. those stats by the yeah. way yeah and writing an article on it um so yeah and of course my book's not about politics i just yeah. use that as an illustration mm -hmm. of how there's not a diversity of, of viewpoints generally speaking yeah so lastly then um for somebody who maybe it's a parent like you know you and melissa have experienced sending a student to a culture at a place like chapel hill which you know you and i both of course you're an, you're an alumnus and and uh most most people here in the in the in the state are fans of the Tar Heels, if not Duke, unfortunately. But, um, you know, uh, what encouragement, I guess, would you say to a parent who's been in the who's going into the situation that you and Melissa have been in where um, maybe they have done a, a, a good job, not just putting their child in a bubble, but they still have some anxiety, perhaps, uh, about sending their student off into the quote unquote real world. Um, or maybe it's even a student who's in that position. We have quite a few young people who listen to the show. What what's what would be your ultimate encouragement to that person to not be thrown about by the the winds that they're about to experience? Yeah, I mean, parents are anxious about that. I think that's entirely understandable. Yes. Um, I think every parent feels a little bit of that when they send their child off, thinking, you know, are they gonna, you know, stay the course? I hope they stay on. And I think they're they're not alone uh there. What do you do with that? Well, you 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 know, certainly on a broad level, you entrust every child into God's hands that he'll sovereignly care for and protect. But I think there's reasons to be optimistic in, in, in the particulars too. Uh, you know, I make the point in the book that, that as, as paradoxical as it sounds, secular universities can actually be a, an amazing place for spiritual growth because sometimes you grow the best when you face opposition, assuming you respond to it well. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a sense in which, even though it looks like it could crush your faith, it actually could rejuvenate your faith. And, and I would tell parents that there's, a, there, there's therefore lots of reasons to be hopeful. And they should also know that a lot of these schools have very good Christian fellowships on campus right. where yes, they're vastly in the minority. Okay. We know that, but the, but the fellowships are rich and strong. Um, and so if that's the situation your child finds themselves in, they have every opportunity to stay steady and to grow. Yeah. Um, now that doesn't guarantee that every child does that, right? Some, regardless of the good opportunities they have, don't take those good opportunities and they go a different path. Okay. Fair enough. But in terms of, of, of comforting parents, I think they can say, hey, I'm going to trust this child in God's hand. And just being at a secular university is not not uh, the end of the story. Yeah, and I, I would agree. Um, and I, I think even for those listening, uh, if they're inclined, um, I'll include some links to some of the major Christian fellowship groups that you're alluding to in the notes of the show for any parent or student who might be interested in finding more information on that. Um, and of course, some, there'll be a link there to Go check out for yourself, Surviving Religion 101. Um, Dr. Kruger, uh, thank you so much for making time for this, but also, too, for, for your heart to bring 
uh, a career of academia at the highest levels to the popular level readers so that we can benefit from it. Um, and thanks for everything else you're doing there out at RTS Charlotte. So thank you so much. Thanks, Jeremy. Great, great talking to you.